Well, we're looking at uh, chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, 11. We'll just kind of review verse 10 because that's where we're starting with this section. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, bless our discussion and study tonight as we complete the book of Philippians. We pray you'll give us grace that we might be able to obey the things that we hear and learn and see in Scripture. Uh, Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for this season we celebrate his coming to earth and his incarnation and his death on the cross for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at... uh, We're looking at chapter 4, verse 11, but let me just recall verse 10 here because this is the section, you remember, of the epistle where Paul gets down to this word of thanksgiving. He's going to finally thank the Philippians for this generous gift that they've given him. And so he says, uh, and and he uses this occasion to talk about the need for contentment. Uh, He uses the fact that he's getting this generous gift from them to say... You know, when you've read this, you know, he says, I appreciate your gift, but I don't really have to have it. You know, I've learned to be content. And so that's kind of an important lesson for us, certainly. It is for me. Let's look at verse 10 again. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Remember, we said Paul is not rebuking them here. He's simply saying that the Philippian church had been a church that had been a supporter of the Apostle Paul. And uh, when he, after he established the church at Philippi, he left. They had, they had supported him in his missionary journeys. Uh, you know, as far as we know, Paul did not, uh, you know, of course we have, he didn't go out on deputation and get support. He basically, when he went on his missionary journey, just went, <laughs> which is pretty hard to do, you know. Um, but he went by himself. He was by himself or with another companion, and he basically worked, you know, at a trade. And then, if he got some support, he would he would uh, stop working for a while, physical labor, and just devote himself to the ministry. So, try to think back if you can, uh, if you're familiar with the Book of Acts, um, about the the his- history of what we're talking about here. We've mentioned it before. But remember, the church of Philippi, I said, was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. That's the journey where he left Antioch in Syria, and he goes back up through what we call Turkey today, up through the province of Galatia and so forth, and then he goes to Troas, which is today on the northwest corner of Turkey, just right across from Greece there. And he gets the Macedonian call in Acts 15. He goes over in Acts 16. And there he establishes a church at Philippi in Acts 16. And this is his second missionary journey. And he establishes a church at Philippi. He's, so there's four people there we know. Titus, uh, I mean Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Luke. Four people. Luke, Paul and Silas are the two main people. And there's also Luke and Silas. And Luke stays behind. And Paul then goes over to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17. And then he goes uh, to Berea, Acts 17. He gets kicked out of Thessalonica. He gets kicked out of Berea, Acts 17. He goes down to Athens, Acts 17. And there, you remember, he confronts the philosophers, 
Mars Hill, as the King James says, the Areopagus there. He doesn't seem to have any great, tremendous success there. It says a few people are saved in Athens, but it doesn't talk even talk about a church being established. And then he goes on Acts 18, when he goes to Corinth. And there it says he found Aquila and Priscilla who uh, had the same profession he did, you remember. They were leather workers or tent makers. And it says there that, that uh, he worked with them a, a while until Timothy and Silas came from Timothy uh, and Silas came from uh, from Macedonia, and they brought a gift. They brought some funds, some money from Macedonia, and Paul didn't work anymore. He just worked full time in the ministry. He devoted himself to the ministry. So we know right there in Acts 18, Paul got some funds from Macedonia, and that's what we're talking about here. Paul is getting funds from the Philippians. Now, Paul had this policy. You can read about it in Second in First Corinthians chapter nine. Paul had a policy that when he went to a new area, he would not take any funds from the people he was preaching to. He would never pass the offering plate. He would never try to collect any money from the people he was trying to evangelize. And we do the same thing. We send missionaries out to various places. We support them because we don't want them to go out there and try to beg for funds from the people they're evangelizing. And the reason Paul says he does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is he says, I don't want to destroy the idea of the freeness of the gospel. The gospel is free. It's a gift. But if I say, give me $100 and I'll tell you the gospel, it doesn't sound very free. So Paul wouldn't take any money from the people he was preaching to, but he would take money from churches he established once he left then he would take support from them like he did from the Philippians. And that's what's going on here. Now, Paul took money from the Philippians when he came to Corinth, apparently, but now a lot has passed. That was Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Paul has now gone to a third missionary journey, which was mostly spent in Ephesus. Uh, And then uh, Paul has gone back to Jerusalem, got arrested, gone to Caesarea, been in prison for two years, and now he's in Rome. So a lot has happened. Ten years has passed at least between Paul being at Philippi initially and now he's at Rome. The Philippians have heard about it and they sent Epaphroditus to Paul. And he's brought them, he's brought a gift. He's, he came there to minister to help Paul and he got deathly sick, you remember. Paul's sending him back, but he also brought some funds apparently. And Paul is now writing to thank them. So he says, I'm rejoicing that you renewed your concern. You just, they just didn't have opportunity. There was, you know, they couldn't email Paul and say, where are you at, Paul? What are you doing? And text him or phone him. Or they, had, they, they, they lacked communication. And so now he's, he's, he's praising and thanking them for this gift. Now, you know, what really seems to give the apostle joy was not gifts so much. And that's what he's trying to communicate here. He's trying to communicate to them that I'm not rejoicing so much that I got the gift. I, I, I wouldn't say he would deny that. I mean, if, if somebody, you know, sends you $100,000 this Christmas, you know, you're not going to say, I don't need that. <laughs> you know? It's hard to say, I don't need that, right? I mean, you know, it's hard to say that. But Paul is saying, Paul is saying honestly under inspiration here that that's not what primarily gave him pleasure was gifts or things, he got more. He got he got greater enjoyment. He could rejoice more out of people and how they displayed, how they acted. 
he, he, he rejoiced over Christians and their character, their conduct. And what he's rejoicing here, as we'll see, is their concern for him. What gave him joy was not so much the gift. I'm sure he appreciated the gift. Because as we said last time, this meant he could probably eat pretty well. Remember we said in those prisons, those prison situations, they didn't really provide any substance, hardly. And so you had to kind of supply for yourself. So I'm sure Paul appreciated this. But he's saying what really gives him rejoicing is not the gift, but what the sort of the gift, you know, represents. You know, we had that old saying, you know, we say it. It's a cliche. We don't really mean it, but we say it. Somebody, you know, when somebody gives somebody a terrible gift, they don't really, it's just awful. Well, it's not the gift that counts, you know. You know, we say that. It's not the gift that counts. It's the thought, you know. We don't really mean that, but we say it's the thought that counts, you know. Well, Paul really means that here. He says, it's the thought. Your thought of me is what really causes me to rejoice. Verse 11, he says, I am not saying this. I'm not talking about your gift and rejoicing in it because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, Paul was in need, but he's saying, I'm not saying this. I'm not just saying this because I have learned what it means to be content whatever the circumstances. I say here, The words, I am not saying this, are designed to qualify what Paul previously said so that the readers, the Philippians, will not draw the wrong inference. The wrong inference or the wrong idea, the wrong conclusion, in this instance, would be that Paul's joy is primarily over the fact they had given him a gift. I don't don't think we have to make Paul a super saint here and say Paul didn't get any joy out of getting some gifts, you know, that could help him. But I think, you know, this is under inspiration. I think the point is he's, he's... He's not primarily concerned about that. He undoubtedly had a need. It was, it was not, uh, but it's not relief of the need that primarily concerned him. His joy was over their friendship, their concern for him, the fact that they were concerned about his ministry, they were trying to help him. You know, Paul is saying here that his joy, his contentment was not based on having his needs met. His, his, his contentment was not based on having his needs met. Now, that's, that's easy to say. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wish I could say that. You know, most of us, if you're like me, we're content when everything's going, we have our needs met, you know. Uh, when we have enough funds and we, you know, our needs are met and so forth. But Paul is saying, that's not true for me. I didn't need that to be contentment. Paul's explanation, I say here, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This expresses what was regarded by many philosophers in the Greco-Roman world as the highest virtue contentment. So a lot, of the, a lot of the philosophers of the day, especially Stoicism, believe that you know, you're trying to strive for certain things. And one of the, the greatest things you can strive for is to be content in your circumstances. But I say, but as we will see, Paul's contentment was not that of the Greco-Roman philosopher, which described, here, quote, the cultivated attitude of the wise person who had become independent of all things and all people relying on himself because of his innate resources on the lot given to him by the gods. This is what the philosophers thought. You've got to learn to, and, and we hear that philosophy a lot. We've heard it in our day. We hear it in people who say, you know, 
who, who are not Christians who will say there's too much emphasis on things, you know, uh, people are too focused on things and, and money and wealth and that kind of thing. And there have been people, you know, down through the ages who are not Christians who have espoused this. Well, this was true in Paul's day. You've got to learn to be self-reliant. I remember reading in English literature about uh, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. That was one of his big things was he influenced a lot of people. You've got to learn to look to yourself. You know, there's a certain truth about self-reliance and all that, that kind of thing. Um, so the truly contented person, uh, as Paul sees it, however, is a person who would live above the need and abundance. Um, and in the pagan world, they talked about self-sufficiency. You've got to learn to be self-sufficient. But as we'll see here, Paul's contentment was not really what we might call self-sufficiency. We might call it Christ-sufficiency. Paul wasn't looking to himself primarily. Paul was looking primarily to his relationship to Christ. And if that was right, if he was right with Christ, then that's what gave him this contentment, this sufficiency. Um, And this is something Paul had to learn. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This is not something you just, you know... You preach, the pastor preaches on contentment. You can't just go forward and pray a prayer. You can't just make a decision, right? You can make a decision, you know, that I need to work on this. But this takes a lot of work. This takes a lifetime of trying to learn this lesson. It takes making the right decisions about how you use your resources. It makes the right decision about, you know, uh, what, what, are your, what are your goals? What, what, are your, what is your emphases? Uh, what are you most concerned about? What are you, what are your, where are your priorities at? And so it's it's something Paul says, I've learned this over time as a Christian. I've learned this contentment. Now, in verse 12, Paul will go on now to explain this learning process. How exactly did Paul, over his life here, learn this lesson of contentment? That I've learned I can be content whatever the circumstances come. Verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I say here, Paul now explains what he means by contentment. By the words to be in need, we should probably think of Paul's various, what are sometimes called hardship lists. We can imagine Paul being in need. And I've just listed some verses here where Paul explains some very difficult circumstances. First Corinthians 4, but this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right at this moment. 2 Corinthians 6, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance and troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots and hard work, sleepless nights. 2 Corinthians 11, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk this like this. I'm the more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death 
again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I had been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So it's not hard to imagine the Apostle Paul saying, I know what it is. You know, I can be, learn to be content in all circumstances, and I've certainly been on the bottom, you know. But he also says, I say here, Paul also understood what it was to have plenty. Now, this is a little difficult to understand. This may refer to his earliest days as a rising figure in Judaism. It's just hard to know. What does it mean when Paul says, um, I know what it is to have plenty? Some people think it might return to his past life, but the problem with that, though, is you think Paul would be talking about his life as a Christian. And my life as a Christian, I know what it is to be in need. And as a Christian, I've known what it is to have plenty. But it's hard to imagine Paul having plenty. We just don't read the book of Acts and see Paul ever had plenty. It's possible that that's just a m- merely relative term. For Paul to have plenty may just mean times when he was not having difficult times, when he was not starving, when he was not suffering privation, when things were going fairly well. The point here is Paul had learned to accept whatever came his way, knowing that his life was not conditioned by either extreme, um, and that his relationship to Christ was what was important. It was irrelevant to him whether he was having good times or bad times. Um. You know, and that's, boy, this is a tough lesson, you know, because, um, you know, how much do we need, you know? Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness and contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So maybe that's what Paul means by plenty. As long as I've got food and clothing... You know, that's time of plenty. Amazing kind of statement there. Um, so I think Paul would tell us, you know, something that is hard for us to grasp, um, that, you know, his contentment, his inner peace, his being uh, satisfied with the circumstances he finds himself in, his contentment, Paul is trying to tell us it didn't depend on what he had or didn't have. Uh, true contentment, I mean, those seem like very pious words, don't it? True contentment does not depend on what one has or doesn't have, you know? Who really believes that? <laughs> uh, what Christian believes that, you know? that uh, Which of us believe that? You know, it's hard to be content in a materialistic world like we live in. It's just very, very hard. You know, um, Luke records an instance of in the gospel about where Jesus meets a soldier, uh, some sort of military soldier, and the soldier asks him, um, actually it was a group of soldiers and, and in chapter 3 of Luke, and they ask him, uh, you know, what should we do? What should we Gentile soldiers do? 
And Jesus told them, he said, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. (laughs) That's something that's hard to do, isn't it? Be content with your pay, you know. And I'm not saying we should never ask for a raise or anything, but, you know, that's that's hard, sometimes hard for us to take. Um, it, it simply means that our contentment, our satisfaction in life shouldn't depend primarily on our bank accounts. And that, that's something we have to learn. That's just, that's just a hard lesson. That's just tough. We need to find contentment in the situation we are at the present time in which God has placed us, you know. Wherever God has placed us at this time and this place, we need to, you know, find contentment there, trusting God's sovereign plan and so forth. Um, Well, how was it that Paul could find contentment in these kinds of circumstances he talks about in our text here? What is this uh, secret to contentment? He mentions this in verse 13. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. Verse 13, he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. This is, uh, you know, we remember the King James translations. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember that, that, that uh, text there. Why isn't the word Christ there? Uh, the word Christ isn't there because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscript says... I can do all things through him. Now, it's talking about Christ, and some later manuscripts put in Christ. So we're, we're talking about Christ. But the NIV has put the word this in here for a very good, good reason. It's, it's, it's a new translation they put. Because, you know, I can do all things through him, the old translation said, or we, the King James. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I was first a Christian... They used to have a practice of having a life verse. It was just a common thing. I don't know if it's still common today, you know, to have a life verse. What's your life verse? I I don't love that. It's okay. It's hard to boil your whole life down to one verse, you know, (laughs) and say this is my verse. But that was the verse I picked, Philippians 4.13. But I didn't really understand what it exactly was saying. I just thought it meant, well, through Christ we can do do anything. You can do whatever, you know. But that's that's not... uh, that's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, as I say here in the notes here, Paul now reaffirms his self-sufficiency. I can do all this. But when Paul says that, he doesn't mean I can do anything. Sometimes when that verse is cited, I can do all things. Sometimes people take that to mean I can do anything, and, and anything, nothing is beyond our power almost. But when, when Paul says, I can do all things, he means the all things just mentioned in the previous context. And what were those all things? Times of good, times of plenty, and times of hardship. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be hungry and so forth. That's why the NIV says, I can do all this. All the stuff I just mentioned here in verse 12 is what the this is referring to. That is... Learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's the this. So Paul is saying, I can do all this. I can endure the ups and downs of life, all the circumstances. As I say here, Paul adds an important qualifying phrase, 
through him who gives me strength. So here's kind of a paradox here. The secret of Paul's independence was not the self-sufficiency of the Greek philosopher, or not the self-sufficiency of the person today. As I say, many people will teach, preach that philosophy today. Learn to be self-sufficient. Depend upon yourself. That's truth in a way, but that's not what Paul is saying here. As I said before, his, his independence from the world, his independence from circumstances and things was, was only true because of his dependence upon God. Here's the secret of Paul's com, com, contentment. I can do all things through him, through Christ. And that means my relationship to Christ, my union with Christ, the fact that I'm saved and I know Christ and, and I have a relationship in the sense of he gives me strength and I rely upon God, I trust God, I pray, I depend upon him. Um, so it's not self-sufficiency, it's, it's a Christ-sufficiency. Uh, in a practical way, this sort of spells out what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. Remember he said there, For to me to live is Christ. Remember that? For to me to live is Christ. This sort of, for me to live is Christ, sort of spells out what he's saying here. I can do all things through Christ. I, my, my concern is, are the things of Christ, the things of God. I try to make that my priority. And if that's my priority in life, then I'm not so bothered by the ups and downs of life. And that's, you know, if you've been a Christian for long enough, you'll recognize that truth. When we get all upset and worried and, you know, just all kinds of things, when we bring our focus back to what's most important, you know, in life, some of those things will fade away. Some of those problems don't seem so big as they used to be, to be as if we can get our attention back on maybe what the most important things are, are, are about. So we have to be careful not to take this verse really out of context because it speaks of, I can do, you know, I, I can do whatever is necessary in life that Christ puts me through. I can find contentment through the spiritual strength that, that, that comes through Christ, through hard times or good times, no matter what comes, Paul was kind of a balanced, even person. The truth is, most of us, you know, I made it for myself. As we said, when times are good, we're pretty high, we're pretty happy. Times are tough, we're kind of low, and, and this kind of thing. And that's not the best thing. We're trying to uh, smooth out and have a more balanced life. And we can, if our priorities are right, and we can look to Christ and find our sufficiency there. Verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. They talk about the gift, the giving, you know. Once again, as in verse 10, Paul expresses his sincere appreciation of the Philippians for their kindness. So he's making it clear that by what I just said about, you know, I've, I, I, I can be content whether you sent me anything or not. Doesn't mean I don't appreciate it, <laughs> you know. I mean, he's saying, you know, if you didn't send me a thing, I'd still find contentment in life. I didn't have to have what you sent, but I'm happy about it. I, I, it was good of you. This was, this was a gracious thing. This is a good thing. The gift met his material needs while he was in prison. And it was also evidence of their being a partner with him in the gospel. Remember he said in Philippians 1.6, you know, when he said out there, you were my partners, you were the, my sharers in the gospel. They partnered with him. 
He thanked them for your, the King James says, your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So uh, this is evidence. The fact that they sent him this is evidence. Uh, that they were partners him in his imprisonment, which is expressed by this word troubles. That's the more broader word. Uh, so even though Paul's life is not determined by need, Paul has learned contentment. He's very happy about what the Philippians have done. It's a good thing. They had accepted his affliction as their own. It was good of you to share in my troubles. They, they were concerned about his troubles. Well, secondly, now we come to this a theology of Christian giving, we might say, because now Paul is going to get down to the actual thanking of them in particular. It may seem a little ungrateful here that he's expressed, you know, I didn't really need it, but, <laughs> but you know, we understand why he did it. He was trying to say, I- I've learned to be content, and, uh, but now he's going to thank them more profusely for what they have done. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, Acts 16, when I set out from Macedonia in Acts 16, and I went over to Thessalonica in Greece, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So Paul went to the Thessalonican church, and then he went to the Berean church. And he's, I guess he's saying the Thessalonians didn't initially, they didn't send him any money. He went from the Berean, remember the Berean church, remember they said he was very complimentary. They, they studied the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Remember that in Acts 17. But they didn't send him any money. You know, he goes to Athens. He goes to Corinth. So it was only the church at Philippi that actually, you know, was concerned enough to try to help him in his ministry. They were the only church in matters of giving and receiving. You only. I say here, after noting the Philippians' willingness to share with him in verse 14, and apparently to leave no doubt regarding his appreciation for their gift, Paul begins a brief rehearsal of their considerable and exemplary history in this matter of financial support. Their support goes back to the early days. I mean, this fits well, you know, with the reference in chapter 1, verse 3, and verse 5. He says, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's the same idea here. I say here, the support actually began when Paul set out in Macedonia. And this is, I say, when he left, he went to... He left uh, uh, Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, and he goes on to Corinth. Remember I said in Acts 18, Luke records when he comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, he works with them, making some money. But then Silas and Timothy, Acts 18.5, come from Macedonia, it says. Now it doesn't say Philippi, but it says Macedonia. But Paul tells us right here, you were the only church in Macedonia that sent any money, so we know it had to come from Philippi. And so uh, when it says in Acts 18.5, Paul no longer needed to do any manual labor. Um, so Paul received money from Philippi. And Paul sort of chastens the, the Philippians, I mean the Corinthians about this a little bit. In his second epistle to the Corinthians... In his second epistle, he says this in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. He says, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. 
And when I was in need and needed something, I was not a burden to you. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. So he's telling the Corinthians, you know, I got money from other churches to serve you. That's part of a longer argument there in 2 Corinthians. But the point I'm just trying to make here is the Philippians were sending him money, support, you know, all this time apparently. You know, they were a very faithful church. I say on, let's say next, and then next right before verse 8. In fact, Paul says the Philippian church was the only one who shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving. Verse 16, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And that's where Paul goes right after Philippi. Paul's in Philippi. He travels east to Thessalonica, about 100 miles east. In Acts 17, verse 1, and he says, more than once you sent money there. I say it's a further reminder of the uniqueness of the Philippians' friendship. Paul adds a final explanatory clause. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So these people were very generous. When he was in Thessalonica, after he departed from Philippi, they had made contributions on more than one occasion. Now, maybe these early, many people think these earlier gifts were maybe smaller in comparison to what we're talking about now in verse 15. This is a very generous gift Paul's going to talk about. So maybe they've been saving up money because they haven't seen Paul in a number of years. And Epaphroditus has come all the way from... So, you know, they may have sent... So this is apparently quite a generous, maybe compared to the original amount. Um. He says, verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. With the words not that, Paul interrupts his expression of gratitude. We get another qualifier about possible misunderstanding. Paul doesn't want him, these people to think that I'm begging for your money, that I just have to have your money. I appreciate it. But it's not that I desire your gifts. What, what really Paul says here is that in this, that when, when, I, when, I, when I said back, you know, in the matter of giving and receiving, you know, previously, when he said, in the matter of giving and receiving, only you, you were the only church you shared with me. Paul's not doing that to try to get more money out of them. That's what he wants them to see. I'm not, I'm not bringing up your generous giving so that you'll give some more, you know. Uh, he says, I don't really desire your gifts. That's not why I'm bringing this up. What I really seek is what may be credited to your account, to their account. Paul, I say here, here Paul is using a commercial metaphor or illustration. You know, it's like a bank account. What may be credited to your account, you know. Um, you've read about these stories, you know, where people, the bank sometimes credits people with money they don't really have. You know, have you heard of you know, they they see in their best bank statements, you know, million dollars. You hear all these stories like that. They take it back, you know, they don't don't let you keep it. But that's what he's talking about with crediting to your account. Suddenly, this, it's like you've got a big deposit. Somebody made a deposit to your checking account. And that's what he is saying here. What I desire is, is what may be credited to your account with God. 
Um, I say the Philippians will accrue interest to their divine account as a result of their faith, fruitfulness, and their spiritual growth. So, you know, that's, that's what's hard. It's, it's tough. Um, because, um, I mean, the toughest thing that preachers have to preach on is probably money. It's the hardest thing <clears throat> to do because, because there's so many mixed emotions and stuff with that. You know, on the one hand, the preacher, the church needs money. <laughs> the church needs money to function and so forth. If you're going to carry on a program, if you're going to build building, if you're going to do what you're doing here, you've got to have money. It just, you know, you've got to have it. And so the problem is, you know, you've heard, I mean, I've heard many people say, well, I don't want to go to that church. All they want is money. And, and sometimes churches are like that. I mean, I'm, there are churches that, you know, that's what they're all about, you know, is money. So it's difficult because there is a spiritual truth here, isn't there, that Paul is saying that, that giving is a positive benefit for us, that our giving to the work of Christ, to the cause of the gospel, does accrue us sort of interest. It does, uh, God looks favorably upon that, you know. It's a positive thing. So it's, it's hard. We can tell people, you should read your Bible, you should pray, you know. It's hard to tell them you should give to the cause of Christ because it looks selfish. It looks like, well, the preacher, he just wants a raise. He just wants a better car. He wants that. So it makes it, and that's what Paul is suffering from here. <laughs> he's, he's suffering from the fact that uh, I don't really desire your gifts, but the fact that your gifts, they will actually be good for you as far as the cause of Christ, because it will show to God that you're faithful, you're concerned. It shows your level of spiritual development and so forth. I mean, there is something wrong with us a little bit, isn't there? If in the world we live in, you know, if we can afford cars and houses and something, we can't give anything to the Lord's work. That that's a little that would be a little bit of a problem, wouldn't it? I mean, let's face it; it would show something about our our real relationship to Christ. It'd be a sign of our. So this is a sign of their spiritual health. Paul says our giving is is sort of an indicator. It's not the only indicator, but it's it's an indicator. Verse eighteen: I have received full payment, and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. I say here the financial language continues as Paul says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. So he's using this financial language of accruing interest to your account. And now I have received full payment. I have more than enough. So he's saying the gifts that Epaphroditus brought, remember Epaphroditus was mentioned in 2.25 through 30. He was the representative sent from the Philippian church to Rome. Paul says, they have completely met my needs. What you have sent has been tremendous. I have more than enough. And uh, they have made an important contribution. I am amply supplied. And he, and he uses this language, they're like an offering that's acceptable to pleasing to God. This same phrase, fragrant offering, is used in Ephesians 5.2 of Christ's sacrificial offering of himself. Christ offers himself to God on behalf of man, and that's like a fragrant offering. Remember, we don't live in the world of sacrifices, but they did. 
where sacrifices were an important part of life and, and they were, you wanted your sacrifice to be accepted by God, you know, whether you're in your Jewish context or a Gentile pagan context. But in the Levitical, read, you can read back in the book of Leviticus, and they talk about all those sacrifices. They talk about uh, fragrant offerings, offerings that please God. It's just a, a language to say these are things that, that please God. And these offerings please God because they come from obedient hearts, from desires to pleasing to please God. Verse 19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's another life verse. It's a good one, isn't it? My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul now reminds the Philippians that his God will do what he himself is not able to do, to reimburse them for their gifts to God. But more than that, it says God will meet all your needs. I mean, some people suggest here that maybe the Philippians had been so generous that they may have found themselves in need. I, I, I don't know. But Paul, what Paul says here is in agreement with other passages of Scripture where God promises to bless those who generously give, especially to advance the work of the Lord. Uh, verse after verse, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This, and he's talking about giving in the context here. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, right off the bat, let me just tell you, this doesn't mean if I give 10000 to the Lord, I'll get 100000 back. It doesn't, doesn't actually quite say that. But each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. It's important to remember the word need here, you know. God will meet all your needs. You know, um, it's not our wants. <laughs> it's our needs. Um, somebody, what was it? Somebody said the difference between a need and our want. Uh, um, a, a need is, is, uh, is what we have, or, or, or a need is what, what our neighbor has or something. We see what our neighbor has and we feel like we need it or something, you know, that kind of thing. But remember what that, I read that verse in 1 Timothy 6, 8. Remember I read that verse? But if we have food and clothing, <laughs> we will be content with that. If we have food and clothing, that's what Paul said. Well, now, we don't live in that world. We have a, we're living a much more affluent age, I mean, obviously. And so we don't expect Christians to take a vow of poverty or anything like that. And so... We can, in fact, Paul says to Timothy, God has given us all these things richly to enjoy. So we don't have to take a vow of poverty here. But Paul is saying God will meet our needs. He doesn't say how that's all going to come about. He doesn't say he'll meet all our wants. But he says, he tells the Philippians, God will meet your needs. Which is a tremendous promise, isn't it? Verse 20. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's closing with a, what's called a doxology. 
Doxology means praise, a word of praise. And so Paul will often end his epistles with some sort of praise to God, to God and Father be glory and glory. We're just saying, may God be glorified. The glory of God's providential care should always be recognized by us as his children. And uh, we therefore we can praise God, and even forever and ever we'll be praising God. Then we have the closing, verses 21 through 23 here, just a short closing. He says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. He's telling the Philippians. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. I say it's possible that the remaining words of this letter were written by Paul's own hand after a pattern he announced in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Uh, One of the things we know in the ancient world is uh, people, um, people who generally... Not everybody, but letters were commonly dictated. You know, famous people of the ancient world we know of, they dictated their letters. Uh, Cicero, I mean, just any important person dictated their letters. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, that's still done today. Letters are dictated and so forth. We sort of type our stuff on emails now. But most people think that Paul sort of dictated his letters. He had what's called a an amanuensis or a secretary who took down Paul as he was writing and so took down his thing. And he mentions that in a number of places, Galatians 6.11, Colossians 4.18, and 2 Thessalonians. He says, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. So Paul would take up the pen at the end of his letters and sort of write out the end, you know, with his own handwriting to distinguish that this is really my letter. This is coming from the Apostle Paul and not some fake person or whatever like that. So it's possible. He doesn't say that here, but it's very possible when you think that now Paul has said the doxology, he sort of may have taken up the pen, and he says this in his own hand, greet all the brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and we send their greetings. Um, so Paul is sending greetings to these believers at Philip, to the believers at every believer at Philippi, and this is to be conveyed, obviously, by the leadership of the church. Epaphroditus is going to come back. He's going to read the letter and so forth. Uh, Paul associates also. Uh, Paul's associates also send their greetings. You know, it says uh, the brothers and sisters who are with me. We don't know who all that is. We know about Timothy is there with Paul. Uh, you know, Epaphroditus is is there at the time of writing. So we just don't, maybe people mentioned in 114, a number who are preaching the gospel and so forth. We don't know who they are. Verse 22, uh, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So I say all God's people refers, of course, to the members of the church at Rome. Paul also extends special greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. This expression denotes people who are engaged in what's called the imperial service. Uh, The emperor had a huge group of people who worked for him, whether they were slaves or whether they were free people, you know, a huge group of people. The slaves that actually worked for the, the emperor were not, as we commonly think of slaves, 
they were usually very intelligent people, very smart people. In the ancient world, you could go into slavery just because you couldn't pay your debts. You had to become a slave, or if you were captured. And so when the Romans captured territories, when they captured people in, uh, when they captured people in Palestine, when they, when they took over Palestine, they took prisoners back, and they took back uh, the sons and daughters of Herod and so forth. And, and so uh, these people had to serve in the imperial household and so on. So uh, we just don't know who all these people are. We know some of them are probably this palace guard. Remember chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul mentions the, the palace guard, the imperial guard, and so forth, the praetorian guard, we say there, you know. Some of these were probably the praetorian guard. And so there's a large group of people, apparently, that Paul is associated with there in Rome. We don't, we don't get all that in the book of Acts, verse 20, chapter 28. It just says Paul's under house arrest, but he's obviously got a lot of connections there that we don't know all about, but we get a glimpse of it here. And verse 23, a final benediction here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is exactly the same I say as Philippians 25 and similar to Galatians 6.18. Well, we made it with just a few minutes to spare, didn't we? (laughs) Well, thanks for being in the class and... uh,